welcome to Rising. We have a magical show for you today. <laughs> Brianna, what do we have? Well, we have a friend of mine, former colleague Nathan Robinson, is going to break down the Dan Price drama and what went wrong with the populist CEO. And we'll discuss why Karine Jean-Pierre is finding herself in hot water for some old tweets. And we'll take a look at some stark housing statistics. But first, we have some updates on the lawsuit between Elon Musk and Twitter. Yesterday in a Delaware court, Twitter alleged that Elon pulled out of the deal because of buyer's remorse rather than concerns about Twitter's bot accounts. More specifically, the tech giant is pointing to texts between Musk and one of his bankers, wherein Musk asked the banker to slow down the deal process until after Putin gave a speech the following day about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Quote, it won't make sense to buy Twitter if we're heading into World War III, Musk said two weeks after he agreed to buy Twitter for $44 billion. However, a lawyer for Musk said the characterization of these texts in court was utter nonsense as the full text change shows. The full text change exchange is expected to be filed on the court docket next week. So, look, I don't know. I, I think that actually sounds like it could be a pretty clear indication of what Elon was thinking, that he agreed to buy it and then decided he'd rather not. Um, uh, Bacha, uh, who uh, co-hosts the show um, some days of the week, has suggest she thinks that, and she argues it pretty persuasively, that she thinks this was a way for him to sell some Tesla stock mm -hmm. without spooking um, other uh, with the markets or other mm -hmm. you know, people who invested in um, Tesla because he had to share some of it to have enough, or sell some of the shares mm -hmm. to have enough money to buy Twitter. If he was just cashing out in general, people go like, oh, does Elon not believe in Tesla anymore? Uh, which is a pretty reasonable argument. It's and look, plausible. So many things, are, it could, and it could be a confluence of things. Like it's, a, it's a complicated, you know, multi-gazillion dollar business deal. Yeah. Um, look, I, I take Elon at his word that he thinks Twitter is an interesting and important public service that he has some beef with and would like to was interested in in changing its policies so that it is more of a, a public square free speech platform. I think I share a lot of those goals and I, I think they're admirable. But uh, for, you know, for a variety of reasons that are now being litigated, um, he ultimately didn't want to go through with it. The funniest thing always still being that so many people at Twitter did not want Elon Musk to take over because they're suddenly viewing Elon as a you know right-wing reactionary Trumpist figure, even though he despises Trump and you know it's not <laughs> it's not well, reactionary at all. But they they are now suing Elon to make him buy Twitter, which is the thing they said they never wanted to happen. Well, well, look, that's because there are these allegations, of course, that he's trying to, you know, adjacent to Batia's point, manipulate stock prices, basically get one over on the market by announcing, using this platform, that he's going to buy it and therefore provide cover for any number of activities. And this is what a lot of people were warning about throughout. There was one critique that was this um, critique of Elon as a person and that which questions his goals and what he would do with Twitter and whether or not he would make it more authoritarian or something like that or be more hostile to the interests of the broad left. But then there was this other critique coming from the left that wasn't about these speech issues, but whether or not it was really a good faith um, effort to buy. And as time goes on, it seems like that second critique is really being validated. I also just want to say the richest man you know in the world not or one of the richest men in the world not really realizing that you shouldn't write down something as damning as i don't really want to buy this basically in so many words and and send that in a discoverable medium to your banker 
I would hope that he would have better legal counsel and it's a lesson to everyone to never write down things that are going to be incriminating or could potentially uh, expose you to legal liability because it will be discovered. Never tweet. How, how many times <laughs> do people have to learn that over and over again? Well, before yesterday's hearing, Elon cited a whistleblower complaint from Twitter's former chief information security officer, Peter Zatko, who told Congress last month that Twitter was inadequately dealing with various security issues that could put investors in U.S. national security at risk. Last week, Musk's team subpoenaed Zatko to appear before, uh, for a deposition this Friday. Zatko also claimed that Twitter does not have an accurate count on bots or spam accounts. And Musk is still maintaining that his withdrawal from the deal is over the fake accounts and the bot accounts. Just last week, Musk tweeted an article from The Australian where former CIA and FBI cybersecurity specialist Dan Woods alleges that 8 in 10 Twitter accounts are fake, uh, which is very high, probably higher than jives with my perception, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because you definitely experience bots, mm -hmm. or you definitely experience, I don't know if bots the right way to, to characterize it, but swarms of activity that feel coordinated in a way that goes beyond a group of ideologically aligned people. You see uh, certain words and patterns repeated in a way that definitely does not seem organic, oftentimes with bad syntax in a way that, you know, many dozens of people wouldn't be making the exact same error. So you, you, when you are a higher profile or a larger account, you, you experience that at the same time, the overwhelming majority of my experiences on Twitter are, are, are authentic. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to assess, especially because you know, the experience of someone who has you know, 10,000 plus followers on Twitter is very rare. The average Twitter user has, you know, Less than a, fewer than a thousand. I don't know what the average user fewer has. Than a thousand. Yeah, if you, sense, I think though, if you have over a hundred thousand or even maybe fifty thousand, that puts you in the top three percent mm -hmm. of of Twitter accounts. So, you know, it's difficult for for someone in my perspective to to tell, but it do, certainly does seem to be an issue. Yeah, it's no, it's definitely an issue. And uh, and look, it's it's a good. You know, if they misled Elon about how what percentage are the bot accounts, like that's that's his argument, and on some level that is clearly true because we all know it's more than what they said it was. Yeah. So now whether, but he could have known that also ahead of time in all likelihood. Right before you embark yeah. upon a deal, it's kind of a due diligence issue. Look, I, I do think that there is value if, if in in pursuing a legal action that could help to expose important aspects of, of a, com a company that plays a role as significant as Twitter does, right? I think there is a, a case for Elon going about this in a way that could potentially expose some real wrongdoing on the part of Twitter. I do think the speech concerns and a lack of transparency about how they make decisions about who to censor, who to covertly censor through shadow bans and things like that is an important one with extreme political implications. Uh, however, his kind of failure to follow through on some of that after the deal is no longer going through, the lack of a uh, kind of a principled interest in continuing to push, continuing to push on these issues outside of his acquisition prospects leads me to believe that it wasn't necessarily as good a faith effort as many people hoped it would be. Mm, I think that's fair. And I'm interested to hear more from this security expert, this former Twitter employee, Zacco, I believe mm -hmm. is his name, uh, and the, you know, this very serious allegations he's made, we talked about on the show a little bit. I'm, I'm still a little wary because, you know, he's an ex-employee and it sounds like he was brought on. I, I was reading a more detailed critique mm -hmm. of the things he was saying from sort of some cyber security expert type people that I, that I trust or more of my ideological persuasion. And they seem to think it was a mix of very, of 
plausible uh, allegations that are of, of serious wrongdoing mm -hmm. on Twitter's part and some, eh, but wasn't like that your job to fix that and mm -hmm. now you're like coming forward and saying, oh, it's not like they brought you on to fix this mm -hmm. problem. Um, so I don't know. I'm interested to hear a lot more from him. I think we're only beginning to kind of understand the extent to which there are serious security. I mean, uh, of course there are serious security problems. Like all of these social media companies have potential security problems because mm -hmm. they're compiling information about you. You're giving them information. You know, how many times do we have? Did you get the notification for whatever tech you're using? It goes, oh, please update. We just realized this whole system is compromised and hackers could easily obtain right. everything you have. Like that's just some to some degree the nature of the beast. Yeah, something a problem we're going to be dealing with. Yeah, know, don't no send uh, incriminating emails to your banker and don't send incriminating DMs to anybody at all. Oh, okay. Is that what we're not supposed to do? <laughs> well, the case is set to go to trial in October. We'll be keeping an eye on it, and I look forward to your radar, Brianna, coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, in his infamous address to the nation last week, Joe Biden called out so-called MAGA Republicans as a group that, quote, represents an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, he did make an effort to distinguish these MAGA Republicans as a minority within the GOP, saying, quote, let me be very clear up front, not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. He went on to point out that he's worked with these mainstream Republicans, and indeed, it's true. Biden has famously bragged about his close relationship with segregationist Strom Thurmond, and he even eulogized the man. But Biden's efforts to stigmatize Trumpism without stigmatizing Republican voters obviously failed. And it's unsurprising given that the overwhelming majority of Republican voters did, in fact, vote for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. After all, MAGA is not one fringe policy a voter could distance themselves from. It was the Republican banner leader's campaign slogan. There is a distinction to be made between Trump enthusiasts and passive supporters of a Republican agenda, just as 44% of Democrats who voted in 2020 said they did so to support the party rather than Joe Biden himself. But it's not difficult to imagine that if the tables were turned, a significant portion of Democrats would be offended by a Republican president referring to Democrats as, say, brain-dead Bidenites and accusing them of fascism. I don't think prefacing, prefacing those comments with hashtag not all Democrats would lessen the sting. So this is important because while I think there's a great deal of hypocrisy on the part of conservative media figures and politicians right now who themselves have repeatedly referred to Democrats as fascists and other divisive terms, there is a core truth here. Politicians increasingly speak about voters in ways that suggest that they are low, base, irredeemable and beneath political notice, something that didn't really used to happen before. And while an average citizen is well within their rights to hate who they want, freedom of association after all, the stakes are a little bit different for a commander in chief, the person who can offer or withhold federal aid to vulnerable families, control federal criminal penalties for drugs, and direct a far-reaching surveillance state. A president should signal that they understand that enormous responsibility for people's lives. A president needs to be clear that they can do their job with compassion and grace because with great power comes great responsibility, no matter if those under his or her power 
deserve, said Grace. So many liberals missed that this was the issue with Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables comment. The damning implication was that some portion of the population over which she, as prospective commander in chief, would have an enormous amount of dominion was beyond political reach. Irredeemable, she called them. As I wrote about her remarks back in 2018, irredeemable voters don't just hold abhorrent views. They're permanently, essentially toxic. By calling half of Trump voters millions of Americans deplorables, she transmuted an adjective into a noun and morphed bad actions and beliefs into untouchable people. Like Biden, Hillary made it clear that she wasn't talking about all conservatives or all Trump voters, but it didn't matter. Why? Well, I think it's because we have an intuitive understanding that political leaders owe their constituents a certain duty of care. There is a unique civic obligation a president owes to each of us, no matter what we do. You don't lose your citizenship because you commit a crime, and you certainly don't stop being a member of our American community because you wear a MAGA hat. That's why, as stewards of our country, politicians lose credibility if they forsake that duty to be president of all America, even rhetorically. You only have to look at the water crisis unfolding in Mississippi to understand the consequences of writing off portions of the population as beneath and beyond political notice. The capital city of more than 150,000 residents had no safe drinking water after its water system completely failed and not without warning. For years, city leadership has been calling for funding to fix the pipe system. In 2021, a winter storm shut the system down for a month. And even when water does flow from the taps, it often isn't safe to drink. In an American city, in the richest country in the world, our own countrymen can't drink for the water they have to pay for. In the middle of an economic crisis, poor and struggling people are made to spend as much as $200 a month on bottled water. And why? How did this happen? Like many southern cities, Jackson only integrated in the early 1970s after it was threatened with losing federal funding for public schools. Rather than share schools with black children, many white families left the city in droves for the surrounding suburbs. From 1980 to 1990, Jackson's white population dropped from 52% to 43%. That trend continued over the decades, and now the city is just 15% white. While, of course, the racial makeup of the city, or the fact that its residents are disproportionately poor, shouldn't have an effect on state legislatures and their obligation to provide basic services for city residents, like clean water, many people believe it did in Jackson. As evidence, they point to the way the predominantly white state legislature has dismissed warnings from Jackson's predominantly black leaders about the looming crisis. After Governor Tate Reeves blamed the city for the crisis, saying it failed to provide state and federal governments with a plan to fix longstanding issues with the city's water system, Mayor Chokwe Lumumba held a press conference yesterday in which he offered up documentary evidence of the city's repeated warnings a strategic capital improvement plan which detailed an exhaustive list of the city's infrastructure needs at the water treatment facility, a critical infrastructure uh, equipment repair plan, a PowerPoint presentation given to the state legislature in which funding was requested for infrastructure projects. Mayor Lumumba also held up a letter from March of 2021, which he sent to the governor after that year's pipe freeze, asking for funds the city needed for repairs. Republican Senators Roger Wicker and Cindy Hyde-Smith were copied on the letter, among others. But Mayor Lumumba says 
He never got a response. And while Wicker supported Biden's infrastructure bill, the source of much needed funding for the tens of millions of dollars in repairs that are necessary, Hyde Smith did not, saying, many provisions in the sprawling legislation have merit and would help Mississippi, but voting for it is a bridge too far to cross. Hyde Smith drew scrutiny during her 2018 congressional race for a picture taken with Civil War paraphernalia captioned Mississippi history at its best. Mississippi used to be the richest state in the nation as a consequence of how many plantations were based there. She was also criticized for saying that if she were invited to a public hanging, she'd be in the front row. Even if you think it's too much of a leap to say that racism definitely plays a role in the negligence with which Mississippi's state and federal government leaders have managed the crisis in Jackson, it's clear that massive infrastructure failures that threaten key resources are disproportionately concentrated in poor areas. Low-income communities are more likely to have poor quality drinking water with greater concentrations of toxic contaminants than their wealthier counterparts. And that's true all across the country, regardless of race. And I would argue that the reason is clear. Affluent people have the power and resources to make sure they never get the crappy end of the stick. Elites have the time, money, and power to attend town halls, to hobnob with the people making decisions about which neighborhoods to build highways through and which neighborhoods get parks, which streets get regular trash pickup and which are left in disarray, where train services go versus which communities merely get a bus. And this is the key point. Politicians get away with treating elites better than the poor when we all start to treat populations like they don't matter. They get away with this when we don't stand up for our fellow citizens and insist that they be engaged with as equals by our leaders at least, that their humanity be respected, even if, especially if, we passionately disagree with them. Now, without a doubt, some liberals will be very upset with this take, objecting to the idea that I draw a false equivalency between people demonized for their political choices and people who have been marginalized because they are poor or black or both, characteristics beyond their control. But the point I'm actually making is a more subtle one. This is not about who deserves grace or my personal feelings about the claims made by disgruntled MAGA Republicans versus the poisoned citizens of Jackson, Mississippi. It's about the value of strategic grace and the need for politicians to understand that for them, extending grace to all Americans is a job requirement. It's a lesson people on both sides of the aisle must learn and one which I'd argue the citizenry should also learn so that we can stand up for our fellow Americans when our leaders do not live up to their responsibility to help and to heal. Mayor of Jackson, Chokwe Lumumba, has displayed a great deal of grace as the city struggles through this crisis. Take a listen. We say that this is a unified effort, right? And not more than a week later, we're taking shots. Then what that fundamentally does to the residents of Jackson is that it leaves them less resolved or less confident that we're actually gonna be able to fix these problems. And so that is why it is important that I remain, that our administration remains, that the city, that the state, that everyone who is putting their hands into the dirt to fix this problem, remain focused on the problem itself and not our differences. People of Jackson don't care about our differences and it is important that we demonstrate love and do something that quite honestly 
so many administrations have failed to do over the time, whether you're talking about the city or the state. And that is to fix a problem that has been plaguing our residents for decades. I believe we can do it. And I stand ready to work with anybody willing to work with me. That right there is how it's done. Take notes, Joe Biden. So, Robbie, you know, I've been following this Mississippi story, as so many people have, and I was struck by a certain parallel, parallel probably isn't the right word, but I was trying to interrogate why it was that Biden's speech rankled me and so many other people. I think it's completely fair to say, yeah, obviously I disagree with people politically, obviously I have ideological opponents, and obviously they're bad faith actors, but there's something specifically about people in leadership, particularly the president, who's the highest leader in the land, talking about members of the populace, not other political leaders, but voters, in a way that seems to put them beyond the reach and scope of politics, of substantive notice, of care. Mm -hmm. And as a person who, from a community that has historically been marginalized in these ways, and as we see the way that poor people are often marginalized as beyond political notice because they're considered to be not voters or, you know, um, people who would never vote for one party or the other because of various um, demographic reasons, you see what the end result of that can be in a, in a maximalist context. And even though it's obviously a very different context and a very different thing that's happening, I worry about what it means for our sense of community for leaders that are very senior, like the president, to have even an edge of that implication in their voice. And I also think it's just politically advantageous for people to use strategic grace, whether or not you feel inside, especially graceful, <laughs> that's between you and your therapist or God. Right. Um, but I do think that there is a, a kind of a public responsibility that these politicians have that they're increasingly reneging on. Yeah, I totally agree. There's just no other sane way to go about it in our country when, look, this is a very politically divided country um, but that's closely divided, that, that is split pretty much down the middle. Yeah. Um, there are millions and millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions of people in this country, committed Democrats, um, many of them, not all of them, want a lot of the things you want. Some want some of the things you want, not all the things you want. And there's a similar, a compar comparable number of uh, Republicans, hundreds of millions of them. Some of them want things I want. Uh, a lot of them don't. A lot of them want more extreme things. Then there's some agreement. But there's the, there are these two big factions. And so if you're, if you're wholesale condemning one or the other, you're, you're, you're talking about almost half the country, no matter what you do. So it's not, this, you know, this isn't like an 80-20 country. Even it, it can't be politically successful to demonize. We're not talking about a small, demonizable percentage, even if that was somehow a morally yeah, good thing to do. I think that's right. Even if it were only 5%, let's yeah. say, of Republicans you were talking about, my issue was the relationship between commander-in-chief and constituent. And I don't think there's any number of people, if, if you took the most vile people in the, in the country, people who have been conclusively convicted of rape who are riding right. in prison, I don't still think it's appropriate for the President of the United States to act like he doesn't still have a responsibility to them as his constituents. It doesn't have mean you like those people. It doesn't mean you want to have coffee with those people and hang out at the right. karaoke bar. But you are the president, and it's your uh, obligation to look out for the totality of the interests of the 
community. And many of the most vile people in our society are politicians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, let's be honest. They're they're corrupt schemers. You know, all of all of these people um, are engaging in, and not all of them. Many of them are engaging in uh, the the kind of you know, a, a wall, backroom dealing or, or profiting from Wall Street based on the information they have. If you did that, they'd lock you up or they'd try to lock you up. Um, uh, you know, gaming the system. They don't really care about the people. Uh, sending, you know, spending our money on, on policies that are terrible, maintaining wars. It doesn't matter how many times it's discredited. Yeah. Um, you know, locking down, I would say, locking down your businesses and your schools longer than uh, was good. They're doing evil things. We should demonize them if you're going to yes, demonize I somebody. Think every politician is fair game. And look, the, the article that I, I quoted from was me defending Bernie Sanders, who had been criticized mm -hmm. for uh, saying that he didn't want to call Trump supporters racist, even though he, you know, called any number of other politicians and specific right. things that had been said racist. And you know, a lot of liberals turned on him over that. And the point that I was simply making is he has to be, he's aiming to be literally president of those people someday. And is that the material question here? I think a lot of people have a lot of biases on both sides of the aisle. One of the things that really tripped me up in 2016 was Hillary voters citing this poll, which showed that, you know, let's say 40% or so of Trump voters had these, you know, explicitly racist thoughts about black people. But the same poll showed that some like 25% of Hillary voters have those same views. So if we're talking about deplorables, then a significant portion of Democrats often right. also fall in that, right. in that category. So what are we really doing here? Are we really just applying labels that give you an excuse not to have to attend to certain parts of the population? Hillary wanted those people not to vote for. Yeah. She got what she wanted. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brianna. We'll have more Rising right after this. Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey put White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on the spot yesterday when he asked about a 2016 tweet she posted that implied Donald Trump stole the election from Hillary Clinton. Here's that exchange. The new attention on the MAGA Republicans. You tweeted in 2016 oh, Trump stole yeah. an election. You I tweeted, was waiting, Peter, when you were going to ask me that question. Well, great. Here we go. You tweeted Trump stole an election. You tweeted Brian Kemp stole an election. If denying election results yeah. is extreme now, yeah. why was so it So let's, let's be really clear. That that comparison that you made is just ridiculous. I have oh, been, yeah, I have ridiculous. been, well, you're asking me, you're asking me a question. Yes. Let me answer it. And you said it was Wait, ridiculous. I was... I was talking specifically at that time of what was happening with voting rights and the what was in danger of voting rights. That's what I was speaking to at the time. Stolen emails, stolen drones, stolen election. Welcome to the world of hashtag unprecedented Trump. The tweet posted six weeks after the 2016 election read. And though Jean-Pierre tried to laugh the questioning off, Ducey pressed on. A follow-up about the MAGA Republican attention. So if we're all in agreement that it is incorrect to say the 2020 election was stolen, what about the 2016 election? Look, I'm not going to go back to where we were or what happened in 2016. We're going to focus on the here and now. We're going to focus on what's happening today, uh, this inflection point that the president pointed out uh, very clearly, very decisively uh, in, in a few speeches about what the country needs to do at this time to bring the country together. And he believes that's where majority of Americans are when it comes to protecting our democracy, when it comes to protecting our rights, and when it comes to protecting our freedoms. That's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to focus on. 
Neither the 2016 or 2020 elections were stolen, to be clear. Ducey's grilling of the press secretary follows the criticism President Biden has received in recent days for singling out so-called MAGA Republicans, which he highlighted in his primetime speech in Philadelphia last Thursday, saying they're a threat to democracy. Look, I, I think this was fair criticism. I mean, that tweet is pretty spicy. Um, in fact, it's the kind of tweet that you can get in trouble for if you're talking about the 2020 election. Um, social media does not take kindly to stolen election claim. Yeah. Clearly, the election was not stolen. Um, you know, if, if Democrats want to make that, they have made it their whole personality to object to what this is their main issue. Democracy is at stake because of the things Trump and his supporters have said about the election. You know, you gotta, your own house got to be pretty much in order if that's going to be your entire thing. And I, she's a liability on that issue because of that tweet, right? Yeah, it, this is the issue. You know, I talk about this a little bit in my radar. One of the real problems here is that there is a meaningful difference between what Trump did uh, and what Trump tried to get other Republicans and leadership to do around the election mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, not certifying election results and, and, and holding up, you know, ballots and the kind of things that he could do at the um, state government level to try to prevent the voters results from actually coming through and the kind of things that Karine Jean-Pierre was referencing, like voter suppression uh, laws that make it more difficult for people to have access to the ballot box. It's legitimate to complain about those things, but in 2016, there was there were a lot of people who went beyond just saying there's voter suppression and said that Donald Trump is an illegitimate president and people who talked in many of the same terms that Donald Trump talked about, about what, how Hillary Clinton could subvert the democratic process and get into the White House on some kind of illegal technicality. Now, I think that Biden and Karine Jean-Pierre and everybody involved would do better to be more specific about their criticism and talk about what Trump himself did, because Trump himself did do things to try to, quote unquote, undermine democracy. But attributing that to MAGA voters as a whole, right. I think, is where you get into hot water. The same way that some random Republican voter in Georgia isn't responsible for voter suppression, ran, you know. Right, and when, and when that person is saying the election was stolen, what they really mean is, oh, it was unfair, and, right. you know, which is something the losing side always, the sentiment right. the, the losing side always expresses in our entire lifetimes, you know, in every presidential election. Right. And, uh, and, and Hillary was a really bitter, sore loser in 2016, wanted to blame it all on Russia, on Tulsi Gabbard, on people. Like, she said, though, she's continued to say those things. Yeah. She still thinks. Bernie Sanders, Jill Stein, right, right. me. <laughs> you, Brianna Joy Gray. Yeah, she's, and she still, she still expresses those things, but at, at a level, at a, right, I agree with you completely, at a rhetorical level that many in the Trump, many Trump supporters also do. And they're, they're very similar, and that's the kind of rhetoric Karine Jean-Pierre was, was using in that tweet. It is different, I agree with you, than what Trump himself did, right. which was take actually dramatic actions, totally ineffectual, not did not work at all, you know, was shot down in every court, had no real plan to do it, had many people in his own team against him, including Attorney General William Barr and other people. Uh, but but yet if they want to run on this, which they do, they really do, um, you should, I'm, so, I'm sorry, you should not have a press secretary um, uh, who made that claim. That's a tweet that could get flagged under different circumstances. It's right. actually kind of a scandal that it's not. I guess they're yeah. not going back and looking at old things. I, I mean, some of these social media sites have policies um, that you can't call into the legitimacy of any election that has ever taken place, even yeah, though, well, like, the, yeah. the 2000 election was. <laughs> right. there, there are major questions right. with that. Nixon versus Kennedy is actually a, a, a case where there was a lot of uh, malfeasance. Um, yes. Yeah, so 
so Hayes versus Tilden yeah. in what 1872-ish? Yeah, I wasn't quite old enough to follow that one, Robbie. Oh, okay. Whoa. <laughs> but, Whoa. But, but look, I, I I agree with you, but also I think you know there's the, the issues with the the scope of some of these social media, <laughs> these social media policies for exactly that reason. But also there's just this comms aspect of how she handled the question. I think she thought that saying that she anticipated this question coming down the pike one day made her look more somehow responsible or less culpable for doing something mm -hmm. that is obviously inconsistent and hypocritical. I don't think it came off that way. Her interrupting Ducey to say, oh, I knew you were going to ask me about this, seemed to be a kind of a filibuster that I don't think came off very well. I think there's a world where she could have said, you know, I think I was talking about something qualitatively different, but I agree that that now that I'm in this public position that I wasn't in before, that's an irresponsible tweet. And I think that there's a reasonable conversation to be had about whether or not some of these social media guidelines that would prohibit tweets like the ones that I did back in 2016, which are being deployed to prohibit people from saying kind of similar things now, are actually well calibrated to do what they're supposed to be doing. But I take your point, Peter. You know, Donald Trump, dutifully, you know, Duly won the election in right. 2016, and Joe Biden won the election in 2020. Right, that would, have better, that would have been a better. Yeah, the, the, her whole, oh, I know, I know what's coming now, but she didn't have a good she answer to it at all. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, is an issue, honestly, uh, uh, with her. I, I, we've both, yeah. I think, kind of criticized. Uh, her performance in this role. And look, it's a thankless role. Yeah, it's, uh, your sure. job is to is to massage the talking points of the administration, make everything sound good when it's not. Yeah. Um, I, I don't envy anyone in this role. For sure. Uh, but she doesn't seem especially effective at it. Yeah, she me. seems like a nice person who tries sure. to deploy her nice personality as an answer to real questions, and that just doesn't work. Her trying to be kind of, oh, come on, Peter, I know this is, I know what you're coming at me for. Like, Right. You're in a different kind of a sphere, and right. that doesn't play. And you're going to have to come up with some substantive responses, or else you're not really serving the interests of the administration. Yeah, maybe we can all tamp down on the democracy is being threatened kind of uh, positioning on all this. More rising after this. body of Eliza Fletcher, a 34-year-old mother of two and kindergarten teacher, was found Monday evening confirming her family's worst fears. This is after she was reportedly forced into a dark SUV early Friday while out for a run near the University of Memphis campus. The suspect of kidnapping and murder is 38-year-old Cleotha Abson, who had previously been serving a 20-year prison sentence for a previous kidnapping. Let's listen to what Memphis officials had to say. With respect to the family, both law enforcement and our office was in contact with the family throughout this long weekend. Uh, they have been fully cooperative throughout that entire process, and in contrast to whatever baseless speculation you might have uh, seen, we have no reason to think this was anything other than an isolated uh, attack by a stranger. Just uh, really terrible. Um, so obviously now there's some discussion about the alleged uh, killer who served 20 years previously for violent kidnapping. Um, served that, was let out. He's had a juvenile record. He's currently 38, so he's had a juvenile record since he was 12. Just very... Very disturbing individual. Uh, this is yeah, an alleged it's, it's crime, obviously. It's not but. difficult to f figure out why someone who's been in prison in, in prison since they were 
12 years old isn't necessarily the most well-adjusted contributing member of society. And unless well. we, wait a minute, unless we believe, and we talked about this in a, in a recent episode earlier this week, unless people believe, and they're real, they're free to say this, that people should be locked up forever as a consequence of doing crimes, then you're going to have to, you know, society is going to have to experience these tragic events where sometimes people who have been let out on parole or who have been let out the end of their sentences do heinous things. And I think it's a, it's a real question to us as a society as to how to actually prevent this from happening with the way we treat people when they're incarcerated. So this is according to the New York Post. Uh, he was convicted of aggravated robbery as well as aggravated kidnapping. He was sentenced in 2001 to serve 24 years in prison. So he didn't serve all of that, obviously. Uh, and uh, this is the, the prosecutor said he fought for him to remain locked up when he tried to challenge the sentence, according to records obtained by the Commercial Appeal. My feelings about being the victim of this crime, or no, maybe that was the victim uh, of the previous kidnapping. I was extremely lucky that I was able to escape from his custody. Um, so the, the, in this previous kidnapping, he was driving this person around in a car. Okay, he held a gun, demanded his car keys, uh, car keys drove him around, trapped him in his car. I mean, these are some pretty, this is a pretty serious crime, though. The yeah, previous it sounds one. like he should, you know. Have stayed have, in prison. Well, for how long exactly? Because he'd served 20 years. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, obviously a, a person who gets out and commits an, a, a murder kidnapping um, soon thereafter should have been still locked well, up. I, 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 like, I, I take your point that maybe we don't know. I want to follow the conclusion. Right. You know, do, does everyone who commits a murder-suicide at, a murder kidnapping at, uh, or just it was a kidnapping at first, at age, I guess, 18? 18, yeah. Should everyone who does commits that crime at age 18 be sentenced to life in prison? I mean, possibly. Well, I think that people should just own that, and that's their truth, and okay. that's what they believe about the world. And I think a lot of folks have some different Fourth Amendment concerns, uh, concerns about the cost of mass incarcerations, and whether or not that, that is the way that we want to run our society, whether or not that is you know, beyond the scope of what is constitutionally allowed in terms of punishment, and whether that's, in fact, cruel and unusual. Look, it's, it's really tough. They're, it they're, is tough. In I don't other think it's cruel and unusual to keep actual violent criminals locked up. Right, but you're... Forever. Well, until it's safe to, for society to not have them locked up. But and for, in some that? cases, that might be forever. It and, depends and on the individual. You are having an ex post Were they reformed and rehabilitated? You're, yeah, it's ex post facto, sure. Uh, knowing that this tragic event happened and interpreting it and projecting a policy prescription on other cases where we can't possibly know what's going on. Eliza Fletcher. And, and that's a problem. The reason we're only talking about this case, I would argue is because it is being weaponized for these kinds of political ends. I, you know, think that everyone should have a deep concern for what this woman and her family that survived her is now going through. It's horribly tragic. It's also true that the most common way that women are murdered is by their partners, intimate That's partner true. violence. And we don't see the breathless coverage of those kinds of stories most often, unless it's particularly salacious um, or it involves a celebrity well, or something. You do see it sometimes, but not in the proportion that it actually occurs. Well, the, and, was and, and Gabby so there Petito, uh, was that what her name? I mean, she, not, a, not a husband, but the boyfriend killed yeah, her. We it's, followed it's, that it's one exhaustively. We, we, did, we did follow that, I think, in, largely, in large part because it had this like TikTok 
you know, it was salacious for other reasons. Like the idea that people were tracking down a right. TikTok, you know, on social media and, and were able to find it through those. Well, I think there was a little bit of that here because her body hadn't been found yet. So my, my point is this. I, I wish we lived in a world where we could sincerely and genuinely cover stories about how tragic people's losses are and how terrible the world can be without me feeling like I have to caveat it in the least because I'm concerned that people are going to draw conclusions from this tragic event and apply it to people who, frankly, often don't commit violent crimes but are in prison for very long periods of time. Huge proportions of our prison population, which is the largest population of prisoners in the entire world, not just by per capita, but absolutely we have more people incarcerated than China does. You know, I, I would just, I'd hate, I hate the feeling that I have that I can't, that I, I feel reserved and full-throatedly condemning, I'm not full-throatedly, I'm mean, obviously condemn it, but full-throatedly even having a conversation about how terrible this is because I am so concerned that this is going to be used to justify Look, any number I of can see the statistics bail reform too. practices I know from looking at the statistics that kidnappings, um, murder, sexual assault, well, maybe sexual assault, less so, murder, not typically committed by strangers. It is, it is not common. If you, if you look at you know, the pie of murders, a very, very small slice is incidents like this where someone is abducted by someone they don't know just on the street. And what that percentage is not of news coverage It's extremely unusual. And you're right that I, I agree with you that to the extent that news coverage scares people into thinking, to being afraid to leave their homes because what if you know, there's stranger danger. This comes up a lot with kids, fears of kids. If you leave your, yeah. this fuels a lot of the bad child policies yeah. where like if you leave a kid alone anywhere on a playground or even in their own backyard you get in trouble you can have a child services investigation because of this paranoia that if you leave them alone they're about to be kidnapped yeah. which is just totally untrue like the number of kids kidnapped by complete strangers it, it approaches zero it's mm. it's a family member it's a custody mm. dispute not to say that bad things don't happen bad things absolutely do happen mm -hmm. spousal abuse happens mm -hmm. custody disputes but the stranger aspect of it is extremely and incredibly rare. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you on all that. That's true. That's just literally true. I've mm -hmm. seen this. I can see the statistics. Um, people should worry far more about violence in relationships and in, in family arrangements with people they know, mm -hmm. et cetera, that kind of thing. All that said, I like. I don't. I mean, this is really horrifying, and it, it, even if it's not indicative of anything, even if it's not part of any trend, it's still horrifying. And it's I don't horrifying. understand why people. It's I horrifying. understand why people are drawn to the story, and thus it's going to be something that's talked about. And look, I agree with. I don't like mass incarceration. I don't want to, everybody who's locked up for nonviolent drug offenses. I would free tomorrow. Uh, people. Uh, there are a lot of older people, probably even, who have committed violent crimes, uh, you know, decades ago and are not really, or, 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 or not a, maybe not a violent crime, but a crime involving a gun or some kind of force, um, that are not really a threat um, anymore. This is probably particularly true if it was uh, women um, who were you know, prosecuted by being like the girlfriend of yeah, a more serious violent women criminal. Are no, right, absolutely. And those, the, the odds that those people are going to cause violence and harm being released in their 40s and 50s is very low, and we could release a great number of I mean, those. And I support all that. A tough case. But this, I mean, this guy is a, 18. So yeah. what you're saying is basically, well, he hasn't aged out of the scary. Sentence. Yes. In order to age out, he would have to be in jail for so much longer than the sentence, which I think reasonable people would think is well calculated to the crime he actually committed. So we're in this place where we're not sentencing people according to what they've actually done, but what we think that they might do. And that is that a weird m m minority report situation that 
violates all of the civil libertarian principles that I think we both. But I mean, it doesn't really in. violate a civil. He already he did commit a crime. He committed a very serious right, crime. Right, but your sentence shouldn't your sentence be have a relationship to what you actually did and not what somebody pred predicts with very bad evidence. By the way, people's predictions of recidivism rates are not very good. Um, that with some judge with limited insight into who you will even become because you are, again, an 18-year-old child. But from my standpoint, the point of prison is to keep the rest of us safe. It's not necessarily punitive. It's not even and its I, I main purpose being prison. rehabilitative. A real bit rehabilitation can be good because we want to let people out if they're not a huge threat to us anymore. But no, we lock, we should lock, we lock people up to make society safer. That I, should be the reason we lock I, people I, up. I, I don't know. I don't think that if I'm 40 and I commit a murder versus if I'm 20 and I commit a murder, that I should get a, a shorter sentence if we did the exact same crime. And I, I think that given all the other factors that go into sentencing and all of the evidence we have about, I'm sorry, subconscious bias, for example, if you commit, if you murder a white person, regardless of your race, you're four times more likely to get the death penalty than if you murder a black person, right? Mm -hmm. Those huge sentencing disparities that come down to what people think what judges and sentencers think that people deserve, I think it's a it's a. I'm not talking about what a, they deserve. Terrible, I'm talking about what keeps society safe. Right, but all of those factors are so incredibly subjective, and you can't know. No one could have predicted. This is the real tragedy of it all. Well, but it's not. That it, no one could have predicted that what an 18 year old was going to be when. But he was we do have 40. statistics on what makes you more likely to reoffend and what age and what. Uh, so, people so in the 18 to 35 demographic are far more so likely to reoffend. They're far more likely saying, to. What you're saying, Robbie, is that if cause... an 18 year old commits a violent crime, they should be in jail until they're 50 years old. And I like I hear you saying that that is your position, and I don't feel the need to talk you out of it. I'm just saying that I strongly disagree with that because the civil libertarian implications of that I think are are worse and worse for our society than I'm sorry even the the, mm. the tragedies um, that we are. Uh, talking about today in the context of this story. Hmm. Well, the tragedy is putting a spotlight on the Memphis area crime wave happening recently, with no fewer than 100 kidnappings reported in the city this year alone, according to News Nation. Fox's star host Tucker Carlson had this to say about the case. It was clear. Everyone knows the rules. Liza Fletcher violated those rules. You can't go outside at certain hours in certain places in America, obviously. And if you do, if you violate the rules, you run the risk of being raped and murdered. That's how things work in this country. So adapt, accept it, move on. To some extent, if we're being honest, all of us feel that way. Whether we articulate it or not, we know what the rules are. We know what we can and cannot do in modern America. Nothing is ever spelled out. Nothing can be spelled out at risk of punishment. But everyone knows what the parameters are. Cities like Memphis or Baltimore or Detroit or Montgomery or Gary, Indiana or Wilmington, Delaware or a dozen other formerly prosperous, orderly little cities across the country were destroyed forever by the rioting that accompanied our last progressive social revolution more than 50 years Look, what I think Tucker is getting at is a very worthwhile point that America in general and our cities in particular had vastly higher crime than they do now, most of them. They had, a, they had huge crime through the period ending around like the early 1990s when there's then thankfully a massive decrease in crime in virtually everywhere. That decrease has plateaued and in some places, not everywhere, which I'm always careful to state, but it, it has increased. Philadelphia now has just as much crime as it did at the height of its crime wave. Um, things are, have not gotten much worse in New York, it seems from looking at the statistics, but other places it has. And look, if, 
I'm a civil libertarian too. I don't want to. I don't want to just lock people up willy nilly either. So then it's. But it's important. Sometimes to, you gotta lock people up. It's well, the, I understand the punchline here, Robbie. And look, what, we should be really clear. What Tucker Carlson was referring to in these riots in places like Delaware in the 1960s, the Wilmington riots in 1968 happened not because black people just went crazy. It's because white people killed Martin Luther King. I'm sorry. Like I, I, I'm sorry. There was a peaceful revolution that had taken place that forced the courts to allow black people, God forbid, to attend the same schools as white people and access the same public benefits that a black tax base also had been paying into and extracting unequal benefit from. When those laws went into, a, into place, white people fled these urban centers. This is what I was talking about a little bit in my radar today. This is not me making up racism. This isn't me trying to unfairly peg people with accusations of racism. Statistically, look at the cities. What happened was there was white flight because people decided that they would rather leave their homes and leave these prosperous little cities that apparently everybody loves and treasures all of a sudden to live in the suburbs rather than let their kids sit next to black kids in school. That is what actually happened. And subsequently, once black people fought hard and won that right, Martin Luther King, the person who read, led this peaceful revolution, was murdered, okay, after having been surveilled and tracked I, and I know, I'm aware. by the FBI. So I'm sorry, Tucker Carlson is really playing a tricky sleight of hand here, saying that the real problem here is that, what, people in cities whoever those people are, whatever that's code for, are just violent and problematic. And ultimately, we shouldn't have, you know, it, it, it's somehow intrinsic to these populations that there's this behavior. No, there's nothing that we can do I don't do think it's intrinsic. It's not, it's clearly not intrinsic because there was a period of high violence and that period that that was fixed, substantially well, fixed not, and reduced. That's not the narrative that so Tucker how do Carlson we, is How do we do that again, or how do we not reverse that? It's such an important policy well, look, question. I, I think that that's right and true. I think there are a lot of interventions that people who are actually invested because really, it's, it's black truly, people facing this violence. And, it's they're and, the ones. You're right. They're ones disproportionately reform. in the city, and they're the ones who will suffer violence when when it, it increases in there, cities. There, I think there was a lot of interventions that people who know more about this and are sincerely invested in mm -hmm. criminal justice for, reform could advocate for that doesn't just require that mass incarceration for decades at the taxpayer's expense is the only way to address these issues. And unless you think that there are populations that are intrinsically derelict or intrinsically deficient, you have to start looking at what cultural uh, what, what social factors rather lead to these kinds of instances. And it's not, never going to be the case that we can completely write, wipe, wipe violence out or at, from society. There's always going to be some element of that. There but we did do it substantially. Behavior. We did it very right. substantially. And to get to back, back to doing it substantially, all I'm saying is you can't do it fully, mm -hmm. but to, did it to make it substantially better, I absolutely think that that is possible. And people should be invested in solutions. But my concern is that when you talk about populations as being kind of historically and potentially irredeemably broken and focus on the idea that it's people in urban sitters without looking to see what happened in those urban sitters and what drove a lot of the trends that we saw over, over the last 60 or 70 years, then what you, the argument you are making is not about how to solve the problem that you and I are both invested in here, Robbie. The argument you're making is about why it is legitimate to draw, withdraw resources from these populations and to simply ramp up mass incarceration and criminalization of these populations, which I don't think is going to lead to better results unless you truly want to live in a dystopic, dystopic world where you do lock 18-year-olds 18 18 year up until they're 60 because you believe in your heart 
that they will probably I mean, you commit just, another you crime. You just don't walk around just arresting random 18-year-olds, but once you engaged in kidnapping, like actual legitimate kidnapping, that's a, you see how that's a more serious. Well, let me ask you this: the the remember the Stanford, I think Stanford swimmer who raped Brock was Turner. about to rape a girl behind a dumpster. Yeah, should he have been locked up for forty years until? I think he was guilty and should be. Should be he locked, locked up, up till forty years? I don't know which sentence he got and what, he didn't get forty years. He's he's out and I think swimming. <laughs> I think that he got out and his life continued. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know. maybe I don't know. I don't know if the sentence was appropriate or not. I would that, have to. That's the issue because our society looks at people like Brock Turner and says, "Oh, he's just a kid that made a mistake and lets him out." And time will tell whether or not he commits another I, but crime. It's or not. It's not wrong to, to, to think through how likely is he after he's been suitably right. punished and think through how but, likely but Robbie, he is to reoffend. And like that's going to matter on the, other the, factors. The point is subjectively making that determination. When we know that the people aren't able to actually make these concrete decisions based on anything other than what they think about a person's life, what's being lost, their likelihood of success, their opportunities that they see in a person that are so socially circumcised. I've literally spoken to a federal judge who said to me about a white-collar criminal who was going to jail after stealing so much more money than any you know uh, convenience store Walmart thief could ever imagine. Millions and millions of dollars in financial theft. Said, you know, I don't know about a long sentence for this guy, he's not going to handle prison well. Right. Okay, that's dumb. I don't care that, how well that, you're going to handle is prison who, or not. That is who but is going to be handing down these sentences. Well, now you're doing, now you're saying, well, we just can't do it because it's too complicated no, it's and our people are flawless I'm saying are, that, are the, and... that the principle that operates here cannot defer to the subjective standards of individual judges. And I don't think as a society we can live in a minority report that's a dystopian movie about what happens when you claim to know about crimes that haven't been committed and punish people and restrain people preemptively. That's a warning that I think we should all heed. That's all I'm saying. All right. Well, we'll have more rising after this. Last month, American entrepreneur Dan Price resigned from his company, Gravity Payments, one day before a New York Times report came out showing that he had an alleged pattern of abusing women. Price made the news in 2015 when it was announced that his company would begin paying employees, all employees, a minimum of $70,000 a year, and that he would take a pay cut, arguing that bosses needed to give their employees a fair deal. But, as it turned out, Bloomberg reported Price has been accused of physical abuse by his ex-wife and was also being sued by his brother. In a new article, editor-in-chief of Current Affairs, Nathan Robinson, writes, Price had been paying himself far more than was standard for similarly sized companies, earning $1.1 million a year. And the lawsuit had been initiated before the raises. This raised the possibility that Price's company-wide raises were a way of deflecting attention from his own exorbitant salary. Robinson asked the question, if the only moral CEO is an abusive narcissist, what does that say about capitalism? And here with us now to discuss is Nathan J. Robinson. Welcome. Hey, nice to be with you. So uh, for people who aren't really following Dan Price, many folks on the left really celebrated the idea uh, that he provided what he felt like was a kind of moral income for all of his employees across the board. And the story as it's told is that he basically had an encounter with an employee, I believe in the parking lot of his building, who was grumpy and disgruntled and seemed to give him in the evil eye. And when he asked him what was wrong, he said that he basically wasn't being paid enough, or, or that, I don't remember the gender, that they weren't being paid enough to, to do the job 
what they were doing. And he had a real come to Jesus moment and realized that he could take a lot less and give his employees a lot more. And he's been doing the circuit talking about how it has in increased uh, his company's productivity, they've earned more money, there's more, there's less turnover, all of these wonderful downstream effects, mm -hmm. and really been advocating for people to raise their employee salaries, something that the left loves. So this is a real hit to many people, not against capitalism, but against the idea of a more progressive workplace. Why did you choose to frame the article the way that you've chosen to, Nathan? He, he not only had a come to Jesus moment, he had a become Jesus moment. He started to make himself, <laughs> to style himself to look like Jesus. There's these sort of photo shoot where he's walking on water. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, you've got to be suspicious of CEOs generally. My leftist stance, right, is that we should be very, very careful when uh, CEOs present themselves as the savior of the workers um, because they have a lot of bad incentives. And it turns out that in this case, uh, Dan Price, it appears from the reporting that has come out, um, was telling kind of a fable here. It looks as if, now we don't have confirmation that, it looks as if the $70,000, all the big raises, may have been part of an effort to deflect attention from the fact that he was being paid an exorbitant amount and was being sued for enriching himself. So, which kind of makes sense, as you, as you say, as I say, CEOs, I tend not to trust them. Uh, and one reason for that is because I believe that power tends to corrupt and that people who are in a position where they're making lots and lots of money and have been for years, there is something suspect if all of a sudden they have this moral revelation that they ought to pay their workers a, a decent salary. Um, so I, I didn't trust him from the beginning. Uh, now, it turns out that he has all these other, it's not just that uh, he made up stuff about the raises and he staged an incident apparently where his employees supposedly bought him a Tesla uh, as a way of saying thank you, but he had suggested the whole thing. Uh, but it turns out that he has also uh, been accused by many women, New York Times talked to a dozen women, of abuse. Now, you could say this is this is all a spectacular coincidence. It says nothing about capitalism, but it's interesting that he was presented by Nicholas Kristof, among others, as proof that capitalism could have a heart. And if that's the proof, well, the proof that capitalism could have a heart has just disappeared into thin air. Hmm. But see, I would have never fallen for this framing. I would have said, yes, this is obviously a cynical attempt, you know, the, the effort to be like, oh, look, I'm, I'm one of the good ones. I care about people, et cetera, is obviously going to be an attempt to disguise something. I, I, just, I guess I don't know. From my perspective, it's not mm -hmm. really an indictment of capitalism necessarily that, you know, this guy was, uh, looks like a kind of obnoxious creep, right? But people, especially the, you know, the, uh, the alleged um, harassment or, you know, cruelty to women, I mean, that's, you know, that's been a component of, like, every, I mean, capitalism is a 300-year-old system. This has been a component yeah, of, kind of everything. With, for... with Robbie on that one to an extent, I mean, there is, unfortunately, regret regrettably, there are instances of, you know, uh, misogynistic abuses, Me Too abuses across the board of people of all kinds of political stripes. And often we have seen a disproportionate um, valuing uh, or, or, or believing of women depending on the politics of the person involved. So you saw broad 
ignoring of the claims against Joe Biden, for instance, because it was politically inconvenient. When you saw the same people very focused on the accusations that have been made against Donald Trump, you've seen any number of progressives taken down by Me Too accusations, many of which ultimately were not substantiated. And I wonder, Nathan, do you have any skepticism about whether or not, 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 you know, not that any of us should really weigh in or opine on not, you know, things we don't know about, the credibility of these claims, but do you wonder if there is a selective emphasis on this story at this point because of the kind of um, shot through the heart that Price's approach to corporate governance is to the way that CEOs typically run their businesses? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what unites all of those cases, right, is that these men have unaccountable power. There's a reason that these allegations often aren't, uh, don't come out for years, and it's because in Price's case, um, he was able to legally threaten uh, the University of Kentucky against releasing a video of his wife making uh, accusations against mm. him. I mean, I think the, the real story here is about the way that people with a great deal of power can get away with lies and manipulation and abuse. I think it's kind of funny that all of us, none of us are really surprised. Robbie's not surprised, even though he's a big proponent of capitalism, that a CEO would not be benevolent. And the question I think is, is why? Why was it so, uh, why was it so implausible that a CEO would pay their workers a decent wage? And I, I think we know, which is that uh, CEOs don't tend to be pretty selfish and greedy people. And so when it comes out that they supposedly are not selfish and greedy people, we should look upon that story. But I think that suggests uh, that Robbie may on some level share the deep cynicism about the capitalist system that Brianna Joy Gray and, uh, and I have. <laughs> I do not. Well, but no, I, I would say, uh, I mean, he, so he's been, this publicity for, uh, for what he's been up to has now forced him from this position. I mean, if he was, uh, if he was a senator, he might be defiantly running for re-election. If, <laughs> if he was a police chief, he might be suspended with pay. I mean, there's a lot of, I, I look, in a, in a very purely philosophical sense, of course, it, who could argue against the, the notion that power does tend to corrupt? And so then it's an argument about, you know, which systems create incentives to discipline people who use power in corrupt ways, and no system is perfect and that includes the capitalistic system. But uh, I, I mean, it's belated, but I see accountability here that I think might not have occurred in other arrangements that I'm not sure you might like better or Brianna might like better. Well, Nathan, what are those arrangements? I mean, you've written a book uh, about, you know, called, you know, you should, why you should be a socialist. What, what, how do you imagine companies, organizations to be structured differently that would allow employees to have more accountability? Well, one of the allegations about Dan Price was that he used to haul employees into meetings, just to hold a meeting just to berate an employee, right? And so the question is, well, how, how do we address that kind of misuse of power? And we have answers to that, right? Which is structures that, uh, or structures of workplace democracy, right? If you have a union contract, you can point to the contract and you can tell your boss to get lost uh, if they do something in violation of the contract. Right. If you have a collective ownership of an organization, there are many different models that you can structure an organization by. But each each one of them is designed to make sure that if 
the person at the top making the decisions makes decisions that are abusive, that violate employees' rights, uh, that they have some kind of mechanism of redress. Now, in, in this case, we got lucky because Dan Price had splashed himself all through the news. So, you know, the mechanism of redress was, was the press. But in most small workplaces, that's not, that's not going to be an option, right? If, you're, if your boss is, is being cruel, if he's sexually harassing people, there's often not much you can do because if you complain about it, you can get fired. So the question is, how do we make sure that bosses can't get away with abusive behavior? And I don't think there's any answer to that question other than increasing the power of workers within the workplace, the most obvious mechanism for which is to give them a union. So you, you mentioned workplace ownership, and I did want to stay on that point just for a second, because so often I think the characterization of you know socialism is state ownership, which I think does play a role, especially when you look at some of these uh, larger institutions like you know oil refineries, et cetera. And then we see the model in Scandinavia of how state ownership of those has been able to yield to a, a lot of benefits for the public. In Alaska, they have the oil dividend and things like that. But often under-discussed is the extent to which I think the, the bulk of the transition that people are hoping for is greater employee ownership and, and employees having the ability to weigh in on decisions like whether or not a company should be moved overseas for a fraction of a dollar more in profit or whether or not it benefits them personally, their families, their communities to keep things at home. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah, people make a big mistake when they think socialism is about government or the state. If you go back to the, the writings of socialists, what we're mainly concerned with is class, the inequality of having a certain number of people, a small capitalist class that owns, and a very much larger number of workers who sell their labor. And so decreasing the gap in power between those classes, in this case, between Dan Price and the, and the people who worked for him. Now, you can do that sometimes through the state, um, but the state could be a monarchy, in which case having the state ownership uh, is not going to eliminate the class system. You can have a class system in a place where in an authoritarian system, as is noted. That's why authoritarian systems that call themselves socialist aren't socialists, because they still have a, a class system. So the thing you always have to look at is, you know, who has the power? Is there an owning class and a working class? And so you can redress that in different ways. And what one way is to have worker ownership. Something that gets you a little closer to it is having unions that can at least discipline the owning class. But in every case, what you're trying to do is make sure that ordinary working people have more power because as we can see, and then this is also why Rush Limbaugh called the $70,000 experiment socialism. Because Rush Limbaugh, you know, it sounds crazy when he says, you know, it's a voluntary, it's in the market. Dan Price is not violating the free market. Um, but what Dan Price did do in that experiment, supposedly, it was kind of a fraud, was to decrease the gap between the owners and the workers and to give a sense, to give almost a sense of worker ownership if it wasn't, if it wasn't real. And that terrified a lot of business owners because they thought they really complained about what Dan Price said because they said, oh, he's going to set a bad example. Now everyone's going to believe in 
egalitarianism. So, but that egalitarianism between the owners and the workers, that's, that's what's more important mm. to socialism than the question of government or the, or the private sector. Well, I'm glad we've uh, continued the time-honored tradition of uh, me responding to an accusation against capitalism, saying, well, that's not really what I mean by capitalism. That's not real capitalism. People of your ideological bent responding to a criticism of socialism saying, of course, that's not socialism. That's not what we mean by socialism. So we, I hope to, hope to do that again uh, at a future date. Thank you so much for joining us, Nathan. Let's keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> More rising right after this. So here's an interesting story. Head Start, which is a federal uh, education program for young kids, putting young kids in, uh, in schools. Head Start is still requiring masks for, these are very young kids. These are like two-year-olds in some cases, they're toddlers. Um, even though the CDC guidelines now they don't recommend masking um, for, well, really for anyone, but especially for children, uh, unless the COVID cases are like totally out of control in your area. Um, and they've actually told, so DHS um, uh, uh, oversees, um, uh, 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 not HHS, not DHS, mm. HHS, Health and Human Services oversees Head Start. And they've said to, this, to the program, yeah, I, technically, this the, the rule is the masking that you have to mask. We're gonna get around to changing it probably. So maybe we're not gonna like enforce it. Like if you're not doing masks, maybe you won't get in trouble. But it is still the rule. So they've just like left it totally, utterly confusing for parents, for teachers, etc. I mean, the difficult now we are getting into. I, I I don't know how you feel about this, but these are kids that are so young. Like, it is a hassle to require them. You know, they're climbing all over each other. They're sticking crayons in their noses or whatever. Not if they're masked. <laughs> well, they're, it, it's, it's real hard to enforce compliance yeah. for kids this young. No one else does this. The World Health Organization does not has never recommended this. Um, this level of masking for kids this young, it is a headache. And it is not, there's not... You you can you can vaccinate even as young as this this age group now. Um, they're going to go to they go to kindergarten and so Head Start's for preschool. They go to kindergarten. They're not required to mask. Um, if they're if they they could be in programs where they're Head Start and they're similar kids who are not Head Start as the same school. Those kids don't have to wear masks, which seems like some real like inequities being talked about because obviously the kids disproportionately likely to be in Head Start are disproportionately disadvantaged. You know, falling into all the disadvantaged categories. And they're going to kind of be required to masks, even though the officials are like, eh, yeah, seems dumb. It, it sounds right? like <laughs> this was an administrative bungle where they haven't consistently gotten their requirements straight across departments. And that there was even an acknowledgment of that, apparently, in the story, as, as you've recounted it. And it seems like it'll be probably corrected in the near future. I'm not sure why it's taking so long, but that all seems right to me. I got to say, I'm not sure. This is a big news New York Times story. It sounds like a little bit of a local issue and, you know, people... Well, it's a federal program. It's, oh, it's... okay. You know, I, I hope it gets figured out. I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm supposed to have some requisite no, level of outrage. you can disagree with me. You can disagree with me. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I, I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> well, you don't have to sound so meek and defeated about I, I just, it. I just, I don't know. Like, this, this is my thing with these stories. It's not about the story. <laughs> it's, it's not about, you know... When, when someone that I don't have an ideological position against or someone who I'm not trying to like 
win an argument with on a public stage, makes a mistake or does something wrong, I'm like, oh gosh, that was a goof. Like that was a mess up. We should try to fix that as much as possible. How can I help? Mm-hmm. Like how can I get? How can I resolve this? How can I help you understand? why I think this is wrong, you know, how can we work to a solution together? But you know, Robbie, that's not the posture of these things. It's, oh, I got him. I got him. Here's another well, instance not on our of show. That. We only get each other when we feel like it. Uh, sometimes Look, we agree. I, I have said repeatedly that obviously it is the case that the CDC bungled a whole lot of things with respect to COVID. Yeah. And that particularly it's advice around what the capabilities of the vaccine could and could not do. And it's mixed advice around masking, which I it does actually work uh, if you use the high quality mask, but a lack of clarity around those kinds of things has led people to be very confused. And this is an example of um, these kind of similar mess ups. I also do think that we live in a society and you know, mess ups are going to be um, common. It's not an excuse not to try to make it better and to put pressure on these folks to get their um, rules in line so that they actually start to make sense. But ultimately, I frankly think that this, none of us preschoolers are gonna stay masked no matter what this policy is. And so, you know, in right. terms of the actual effect But of the it, bureaucratic uncertainty, so in a, written, in a written statement, the Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees Head Start, acknowledged that the current guidelines contradict those of the CDC, but said the centers, well, we're not being checked for compliance on masking. Updating the official rules is a lengthy process. Maybe, <laughs> maybe get to it. Maybe do some work here. Yeah, and fix the process. Uh, the statement said, which would take into consideration the CDC's evolving recommendations, the recent availability of vaccinations for children as young as six months. Uh, Etc. It just it just goes into the struggle, and this story does acknowledge what I and many people uh, like myself who are concerned about the level of masking for young kids uh, says that masks can. This is from the New York Times. Masks can make it more challenging for some children to develop early speech and reading skills, which are learned in part by observing mouths in movement, according to research. And while masks properly worn do offer virus protection, young children tend not to be severely affected by the coronavirus, even when unvaccinated. So it's, uh, I mean, it's just, again, it's just, it's, no one else is, no one else, no, no, no one else is doing this. In most schools, I guess some DC schools are apart from them, most schools, you don't have to be masked like at all. But, and, and the, the, the toddlers are the, like the least, in danger group, and they're trying to wrestle masks onto people because the Department of Health and Human Services is too busy to bother to fi- to update this rule. That's that's the. F- it's it's not. It's just frustrating. It's just frustrating that our government is like this. Well, I know that it is very frustrating, especially given the enormous size of your brood, <laughs> <laughs> Robbie. I mean, look. I- it, it is frustrating. I, yeah. I, look, let me not speak to, from your behalf. I personally, it, right. this is I don't not a motivating issue for I'm me. I don't have kids. I'm frustration. <laughs> I have a lot of nieces and nephews, although they're not in. Uh, in they're they're in. Well, have they well no, I have. Oh, I have nieces and nephews in that age range, but they're mostly in private school. So, uh, um, and, and and in fact, did not have to do um, some a lot of the more. Uh, I, I think I said recently on the show, most of my nieces and nephews are in school. Uh, were in were in school the whole time. Are they, maybe maybe they, I think they probably had to wear masks. It's do people? Yeah, I was going to ask. Is there? It's hard to keep straight. What, there's literally thirteen of them. Anybody? It's hard to keep straight. What, and they're all in different schools and all. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all in Michigan, it's, but it's hard to even remember who's. Yeah, in what it's interesting because a friend time. of mine is, is just starting a teaching job for the first time, and you know he was curious about what the expectations were going to be for his own masking, and he in some of the introductory. Um, training sessions with the other teachers mm-hmm. showed up not masked, and some of the other teachers 
were and there was like a weird kind of subtext about what they were we're not supposed to do his feeling was that ultimately he was going to be in the classroom and he was cutting his losses but obviously i can completely understand if you as a teacher who is already subject to all of the illnesses that kids give you all the time don't especially want to be catching covid multiple times a year and i think regardless of what is mandated um people are going to have a it's going to be some time before they work yeah. out what is actually the best calibration for them being able to do their jobs and actually stay safe and not be out for half of the year with various illnesses. But as we discussed in uh, in your podcast, if you want to protect yourself, you can go ahead, wear that very uh, uh, KN95 mask and give yourself, according to this data, you, you know, an 85% or whatever it is, reduction in the likelihood of that you would breathe in a, a harmful particle. And that sounds pretty good. So go ahead and do that, and you'll be good to go. And we don't have to mandate it or require it on anyone else. You have extra, And if you've vaccinated and boosted yourself, you just got all the protection in the world. And yeah, well, thank, thank you for that, Robbie. My body, my choice, Suave. Absolutely. That's what they call me <laughs> on the streets. <laughs> on these streets, that's my nickname. Well, we're rising for you right after this. <laughs> Democrats and Republicans are in the final sprint toward the midterm elections. In a new glossy campaign ad, Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sought to highlight how blue-collar workers benefited from his anti-lockdown measures that many states, particularly blue states, have embraced. Ladies and gentlemen, Governor Ron DeSantis. Today we deliver for the people of Florida yet again. We saved our jobs. And kept us going. They tried to shut us down, but you saved our business. You had our backs. And honored our service. You led by facts, not fear. And you let us decide. You let me go to school. You gave me a voice. You put us first. And didn't let them keep us apart. You let us learn. You let us compete. All of us. You protected our right to worship together in person. And you raised our pay. You protected our waters. And kept Florida beautiful. When they attacked you, you didn't cave. You stood strong for Florida. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Gracias, Governor DeSantis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Governor DeSantis. So I thought it was a pretty effective ad. What are your feelings? Um, sure. I, I mean, I don't know that I am necessarily... Well, you're not the target audience, for it, no. But uh, right, if if you're, uh, well, look, I, I, so so he's running against uh, Charlie Crist, who is the Democratic candidate. Charlie Crist, obviously, a former Republican, was the governor of the state, and then I, if I have my recollection right of how this happened, um, ran for s Senate, switched parties, sort of at the end of the was kind of disaffected with Bush stuff and has become a pretty committed partisan Democrat, but with a veneer of moderation because he was a former Republican, but like intensely anti, almost annoyingly kind of never Trump uh, person. The kind, the exact kind of person that, um, that, mainstream, that mainstream media, that what? That, <laughs> that nobody likes, yes, the mainstream media That the mainstream likes. media holds up and like, here's a, here's a Republican we can work with. He's not even a Republican, he's a Democrat. Right. But 
this is this is the guy. He and, represents but that no, no real one, person. No one. This is, is a combination of beliefs, traits, and histories that no one actually has in the no entire one. United States of America entirely. Look, so he's not going to win. It, it's it's very frustrating. I'm saying some version of this happens, and progressives complain about it all the time. It's not always necessarily someone who's literally a former Republican, but it's people who might as well be. And on top of the Liz Cheneys mm-hmm. of the world, on top of CNN or MSNBC rather being populated by mostly. Like, so many of their chief hosts are right. former Republicans, whether it's Nicole Wallace being Bush's comms person, whether it's Joe Scarborough. I mean, the whole right. lineup, basically, and they're not, And importantly, they're not, they're not Republicans who've, who've like, economically and foreign policy-wise Correct. moved to the left and are talking to, to Democratic audiences about how, if you moderate some of, your, like, your aggressive cultural, social uh, leftism, uh, you would do better. It's it's it. Those people themselves have become more culturally liberal. They they have mostly they have all the same foreign policy views. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's like the worst it's combination the worst of, all of, 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 yeah. of all of the things entirely. And I will say, you know, it is it is frustrating to see constantly uh, Democrats rather do this to put forth these candidates that don't reflect the interests of anybody in the country, and then when they ultimately fail, which is very likely to happen blame somehow progressives and the fact that the country needs to just move farther to the right instead of maybe these politicians need to be more insightful about which policies and approaches but are to be clear i think a, progress- a progressive notion. candidate would also fail in florida i mean i desantis is po- i think desantis is popular in florida this is a message that floridian i mean there's just simply more republicans in florida now it's becoming a red state not a swing state. well i i don't i don't know about that i mean there is a characterization of florida as a country as a state that is conservative and moving to the right but it's also a state i'm sorry i'm gonna have to keep saying this that voted for a minimum wage the same year on the same ballot that they voted for donald trump to be president in the united states of america with 60 percent of the vote with a philip they had a filibuster proof majority of Floridians saying that they wanted a living wage. And in response to that, Florida, who, you know, Florida leadership, Republican leadership, which knows that this is uh, something that the, the people of the state want, have been working overtime to not just suppress that initiative, but by, to make it more difficult for similar ballot initiatives um, to come down the pike. Um, they, for example, recently uh, passed a bill, the GOP legislature passed a bill to increase the number of signatures required for initiatives to be placed on the ballot and also have shrunk the length of time the signatures are valid from four years to two, meaning that they can only use them for one election cycle, which means that all of the expense that goes into collecting enough signatures to get something that the people want on the ballot is going to be even diffi- more difficult and more Yeah, those are probably bad for things. People. It's I, anti-democratic. Yeah, I, I don't agree with uh, with the minimum wage policy, or, and I would have voted against sure, that measure but, as well, but I but do agree with you. But the people of Florida do want it. And I, in general, I'm a fan of the ballot initiative process. Um, I, I'd rather just simply put policy, if we're going to have policy questions decided by governments, is I'd just rather put it to the people directly, get the politicians right. out of the way. Right, so you have to so, ask the question, right. if Florida is so conservative, if they have such a lock on these conservative issues, then why is it that the GOP legislature is working overtime to prevent the people from actually having a voice? That, that, that you know, is the question that people are going to have to continue to, to answer. But the move from DeSantis comes amid a bitter battle for the governorship between him and Democratic candidate Charlie Crist. Uh, we have some polls that show that uh, Crist is not 
faring especially well. And while Chris may be attempting to put forth a fervent effort, DeSantis remains wildly popular and polls indicate he's favored to win re-election. 538 is projecting DeSantis has about a 93% chance of winning in the state, which has moved more right, arguably, to my point earlier, in, in recent years. I mean, it's moved right even since 2016, though. Didn't Donald Trump do better in 2020 than he did in 2016? That is not, but look, the, the way you're able to identify these never-Trump Republicans as a weird mishmash of ideological beliefs that sure. don't really map onto what it means to be a Republican on average these terms like right, left, don't mean anything anymore. We have a political party system that is designed to pick and choose issues precisely so that people never recognize the extent to which there are issues that have overwhelming consensus about them. And that's the point of these left populist campaigns. If you go down the list, I'm sorry, of Bernie Sanders' agenda, you're going to find policy after policy that has 60% or more support, including support from Republicans. So something like Medicare for All had 49 percent of Republicans on board. Half of Republicans were on board, not to mention 88 percent of Democrats, to bring it to an overwhelming majority, a $15 minimum wage, canceling medical debt, canceling student debt. All of these policies were overwhelmingly popular. A, a wealth tax, an overwhelming majority of, of I mean, Americans, I've, okay, I've including seen the a, a majority of Republicans, support a wealth tax, and we don't get politicians running on any of those policies. Why not? Some of those questions depend on how they're, I've looked at the polling for student every loan debt. Every question depends on how you ask place. everything. Right, yes. So if I, if I sat here and said, do you support Support. Uh, the war in Ukraine, I could ask that 50 different ways and get 50 different results, but in no other context do we pick and choose at the polls in this exact same way. Look, at the end of the day, it's not, you don't need a poll to tell you that Americans are fed up with their health care system. They're tired of being victims of cancer and other treatable and treatable illnesses just because they don't have the money to pay for those kinds yes, of things. Yes, they'll answer a poll there's being a, against cancer. There's a housing cancer. crisis. No, <laughs> I mean, that's they're, not, they're, a, they're that's against, not a responsive. They're against the idea that there's no transparency in billing, that they're they're afraid to go in and get even checkups because they don't know what if they're going to get a surprise bill that they can't afford. It's going to send them into bankruptcy. They're, they're upset about a We're lot of united things. United by our common frustrations with various systems. Right, yeah, but what, the, the, the political system does not form its parties or run campaigns around the things that we share in common. There could be someone that says, okay, let's put some of these cultural issues aside. We're in a crisis, an economic and global crisis right now. We are going to run purely on protecting workers, labor rights, uh, a minimum Ask a, people a living if they wage. Want, do you want the government more involved in the delivery of education? Do you want, do you yeah, want the government right, more Robbie. involved in between you and your doctor? You want the government to have more say or more direction or how this goes? You're right, Robbie. You can ask questions to divide people, just like you did. And that's exactly what both political parties have been doing well, for you decades. You can ask them in a magical, do you want everything fixed it's by... It's not magical. Like, we have not... something called Medicare. It works, and it's a popular policy. And when people have the option, when you ask people, do you want to lower the Medicare age so that people, more people can take advantage of it, the answer is a resounding yes. And that's all Medicare all is. Lowering the medical, the Medicare accessibility age by 10 years over the, uh, by, over the course of four years I, mean, or I don't so. disagree with and that. So this was Donald included. Trump's singular political kind of insight is he was, he, he did not run against um, the welfare state or the social safety net in the way previous right. Republicans has, and he was more successful. Right. Run on uh, uh, addressing the opioid, opioid pandemic and getting people the health care they need. Run on all the things that it's not rocket science. Run against the telecom co companies. Run against cold callers. Run against the fact that Comcast has us all in a vice grip. Run against all of the things well, that everyone agrees on. <laughs> right? Like, but we never see that kind of messaging from campaigns. And I got to say, it is not an accident. Both parties rely on messaging and polling that makes it seem as though we are a divided nation, that there is no way for us to be unpolarized. And people fall 
for it because there are millions and millions of dollars spent in making sure that they never realize that they actually substantively okay, these, agree with their neighbor. But some of these are difficult policy questions where there are substantial trade-offs and they're not easy answers. All right. So the, under so the Republicans say, let's, let's rely on the fact that we can criticize everything. You can criticize anything in the world. Every single thing has pros and cons. We'll, we'll, we'll weaponize that reality to make sure that nothing ever happens. And who is suffering? The people in Florida who can't afford rent? The people in Florida who don't have a living wage? They the say, people let's in Florida not who make have it corrupt work, water system? Make it worse by adding another army of bureaucrats to study this so problem. Don't, don't, don't arm, add another, another army of bureaucrats to study the problem. That's what Democrats do. They said they want to have a commission to study the effect, efficacy of the blah, blah, blah. No, people need to do things. Government used to work because it hired people that were actually experts in their field. Uh, FDR famously hired people who were actually farmers and practitioners to work in his agriculture you department and things like farm. that. And so, so that people actually understood what was going on and the government could actually do things instead of outsourcing to private contractors that fleece Americans like what has just happened in Jackson, Mississippi. The city has a $200 million bill that it had to litigate to get some of it absolved, not all of it, to fix for a private company to fix the water system, and it ultimately didn't actually do it, and we see what they're going Years through Years later, today. the Great Depression was in as full swing as it was at the Look, beginning. if people want to accept your worldview... That was exactly the example of adding armies of bureaucrats to tackle problems it, makes no difference. The listeners can make their own choice, and if people want to accept your worldview that... There are downsides to doing things, so we might as well not do anything at all. Why, why parent? Because you know some of the things I say to my children are going to scar them for life. I might as well just throw them in the, in the room and lock the door and slide food under the door. Like, come on. Every single thing you do has potential for failure and downsides. But we stop being a community and we stop being a country when we stop trying and we stop letting the people have a we say just, in the efforts to make their own We and the government are different better. things. We and the government are different things. Does the government make things better? We can make things better. We, we should can come be together the government, which is exactly why I did a radar well, last week that you had some objections to about the negative influence of money in politics and the kind of politics the GOP is doing right here to get between the people and their ballot measures and what they actually want. If you are so confident that all of these things that people want are going to fail, at the very least, you could let the people try them so you could substantiate your argument. All right, we got to go. More <laughs> rising after this. The Views, Whoopi Goldberg, star of my favorite movie, Bane of Progressives Everywhere, slammed critics of Amazon's new series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Let's listen. I want to start by saying these are not real. Okay. <laughs> the new Lord of the Rings series, <coughs> The Ring of Power, Rings of Power, and Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon, are both massive hits but they don't exist in the real world, okay? There are no dragons, there are no hobbits, you know, you, you know that. And there are critics who are saying they were too woke by adding, yes, adding diverse characters. Are you telling me black people can't be fake people too? Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're telling me? You can be a dragon. Well, there, if, 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 yeah, I mean, I, like, yeah. I don't know if there's like a, a hobbit you know, club. I don't know if they're, you know, they're going to be protests, but people, what is wrong with y'all? Oh, this comes after Tesla CEO Elon Musk reignited his rivalry with Amazon founder Jeff Bezos after Musk bashed the new Lord of the Rings series. Musk tweeted that Tolkien would be rolling in his grave due to the fact that almost every male character in the show so far is a coward, jerk, or both. Only Galadriel is brave, smart, and nice. <laughs> Galadriel being an elven uh, female elf hero. Uh, you might remember her from the original Lord of the Rings films, which she's played by Kate Blanchett. So this oh, is 
the prequel that takes place many, uh, many thousands of years earlier, but the elves live a very long time. Well, well Robbie, as our regular You know expert. I have wanted to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> casual viewers of the show might have, might have uh, um, uh, come to the realization that I'm a little bit of a nerd on these well, topics. Well, that's, that's why I, I need your opinion. I want to yeah. know, is, is Whoopi Goldberg right? Are there no Hobbit clubs? Is there going to be a march on Hobbitville? What do you make of all of this? So, uh, so right. This is the. This was a criticism that some people have made. Some people on the right that like they're going woke or something by trying to do diverse casting. Uh, I, I don't know that I really felt that way about it. I take Whoopi's po point that it's a, a fictional realm. I mean, you want some some fidelity to the to the actual vision of the creative author in, in this part, Tolkien, in which really the because there is there's a lot of elves are a race, dwarves are a race. There's a lot of enmity between them. Do they talk about the skin color of those races or just the fact that they're short well, it's not or skin giant? Co skin color is not the racial characteristic. Right. It's, it's, I mean, there's vast racial differences between elves and dwarves and the other races. It's not skin color. It's so there, he doesn't it's, say that elves are also fair. Like sometimes no, they're, they're they are they are described as fair. Okay. Yeah, they're described. So as fair. I mean, there was there was this big brouhaha. I remember around. Um, the one with Jennifer Lawrence when she where she shoots bows and arrows. The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games, where Rue, the character, was actually described in the book as kind of darker skinned or olive or so something like that. But they cast a black girl, and people lost their minds. And some okay. folks who read the original books were like, actually, she is described as like right. dusky or something that could be plausibly read as black if you wanted to. And in fact, it is a kind of fidelity to the material. Well, I mean, I, I think I agree that you know if if a character is described very specifically in a way that suggests that they are in fact pale, then it makes sense to right. cast someone that is faithful to the material. But if they are described merely as, let's say, blonde, like the Targaryens are, white-haired or silver-haired, excuse oh, me. We're going we're gonna to get to them in a minute. <laughs> okay. hold, hold on to that. But the, the only other thing I want to say about the, the Lord of the Rings stuff, it, it, it's really, it, gender is more of the issue, because uh, Tolkien does not have uh, very many uh, female mm -hmm. adventure hero-type characters. Um, and and I, I do take Elon Musk's point, I don't know that I would have agreed with him that strongly, that it, it does have a kind of rah-rah feminism about it, uh, which is it's just fine. It can have, I'm actually, I'm not enjoying it very much. I'm not enjoying it because it's like too woke or something. I just, I'm, I'm not like in love with the story of it yet. I actually like fell asleep during the second episode. So are there, are there a, new characters? There's gender This is a prequel. Swapping? This is thousands of years ago. Um, so they're inventing some of the characters that aren't like that I don't see. exist. Like there's a new, they're the proto um, hobbits. These are the the little people who will become hobbits eventually. Okay. And like they have this girl character who I don't I don't think she exists. And maybe she exists somewhere in the in all the prior materials. I don't think so. I think they invented her. Okay. So the argument that Elon Musk is making is that the 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 version of the books and shows that we all are familiar with. A lot with. of strong masculine male heroes. So it's, it's like an admission that it's. Male dominated, and there haven't been a lot of compelling female right, characters. And they're trying to like vastly overcorrect. And he's upset that the entire canon to date is not enough to b bolster his uh, I, I masculinity. It feels like a an overcorrecting in an annoying way. So one show that has strong female characters is an overcorrection for right. the entire canon of Lord of the Rings to date that has almost no strong female like, characters. I don't know. I love what they're doing with the character Galadriel, the, the one we're talking about. Yeah. Like they make her, I mean, she's very awesome in the original Lord of the Rings movie. She's a sorceress. She's like the most powerful yeah, person. She's very cool. Um, now they're giving her, uh, they, they make her like a really good sword fighter too. And well, that's it's the not, problem. Like, it's just, I, I think that sometimes kind of these are there are there is a kind of 
um, for, uh, forcedness uh, in some of this forcedness. stuff, like the female Ghostbusters. And it's difficult to disentangle criti critics who just don't like when right. girls are starring versus critics who are actually upset about the heavy-handedness with which women have been characterized as the star. And, and it's difficult. It's frustrating. And I think it sets you know, w women back right. and, you know, marginalized groups back when these characters are handled so poorly. But I do wish that someone like Elon could just criticize the character for substantive reasons, if well, there are substantive reasons, let's turn, instead let, of calling it wokeness. Let's turn to House of the Dragon now, which you do watch. We <laughs> I discuss do watch. House of the Dragon before <laughs> yes. we start rolling. Yes, we do. Um, so the, the criticism here does make a, a certain amount of sense. Uh, so uh, the House Valyrian, mm -hmm. this, uh, group, this group of people who are closely related to the main Targaryens of the show. This mm -hmm. is the Targaryens, are, if you remember Daenerys Targaryen, mm -hmm. they all have like very white blonde hair, mm -hmm. very pale skin. Mm -hmm. um, their close relatives, House Valyrian, are depicted in this prequel as, as black. Um, they're well, all black. What? Oh, I thought the the wife is... Oh, she's not from their same family. She, right, she's a I Targaryen who okay. married into the family. Okay. But they're supposed to be closely related and from the same like city beyond Westeros sure. that they came to. So making them... I, like, I understand... Like, it's not a very diverse are, cast. Are we didn't black, do that. Or is the, the, the main character... And then we're seeing his brother and his kids and stuff, so obviously yeah. all of his well, immediate right. his, relations are His soldiers are black. aren't necessarily... But yeah. yes, the, the, the blood members of House Valyrian are black. They still, To show that they're closely related to the Targaryens, they still gave them that very silver or yellow hair. It's, it's a very odd look. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about <laughs> well, it. Well, I think it looks... I think it looks great. But, you know, I'm, it looks, I'm curious... It's a look. <laughs> Here's what it says, like in the book. Again, like, it, are they? Is it? Does it specifically say that this family of people is pale-skinned, or yes. does it say that they are Valerians or it, Targaryens? It says that they're closely related to the Targaryens, and there's some assumption that they look similar. I don't know. I've got some pretty pale cousins, Robbie. <laughs> I mean, I'm right. There's, there's great range, but um, but you know, it's interesting though. There might actually be a plot reason to do it, mm -hmm. other than just wanting to have diverse casting, because there are some. There's going to be some without spoilers. Anything if you can't handle even having a hint of a thing in the future, turn this off now. I don't want to be accused of this again. I spoiled um, I spoiled uh, someone's death in the original series in an article I wrote, and I've never been forgiven for it. Oh, Robbie. Uh, I haven't forgiven myself. Have they kicked you out of the D&D nights on Wednesday? Thank goodness, no. Um, there's going to be some uh, some marrying and like, oh, maybe who's the, who's the baby daddy? Mm -hmm. We're not quite sure where the oh, skin color could be a factor. I you know see. what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. So, and I very much look forward to the union that's being hinted at right now. Okay. I, for one, am a big fan of this casting. <laughs> for, some, for some superficial reasons. My, when okay. my friends and I were watching, and we were very thrilled okay. Okay. <laughs> about some of the optics that were going on there. But look, look, I appreciate when people want fidelity to the material, but I do think that ultimately this is kind of a nothing burger. Sometimes you get a great actor and you just want him in a role. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's nice to not have those kind of constraints as long as it's not distracting. And to Whoopi's point, in a fantasy realm, I don't know how troubled I would be by that. Well, you, you want consistency of the, the whole, like, there are dragons, so it's okay if things don't make sense. That's, like, that's not true. Things that's, don't make Things sense. should make sense. In, the, the dragons should be made to make sense. And the... Look, I'll say this. I thought, for example, that I really like Emilia Clark as an actress, but I felt that she was miscast in the original because she didn't seem... Not a Daenerys fan here. Yeah, she, not a she should, I felt like she should have been a taller, more athletic, more powerful person just to fit the role. Now, that's not about race. I thought that but you know, typically she just never seemed to embody the fierce spirit that 
she was supposed to have. She, she seemed always very vulnerable to me and it didn't fit with the role. So I think that it's completely legitimate to say that there are expectations you have from a character and casting does involve looks. But I think in some cases, race is important to the role and is part of that. And in other cases, I'm a little bit more flexible. And I think because of the nature of the show, and, and, and I haven't read the books. Maybe I'd feel differently if I saw the specific descriptions in the books and if it really you know, undermined my, my reading of it. But as a, as a novel viewer who is not as expert as you, Robbie, I got to say, this, this particular instance isn't bothering me. Yeah. It's not bothering me that much. I, people would say, if you, you, know, you want to bring in diverse casting, you got to have more Dornish. Like the Dornish yeah. are portrayed as actually having a, diff, a sort of different ethnicity mm -hmm. or being a mix of uh, white like people, like Hispanic or Middle oh, Eastern. Okay. Or, okay. Yeah, kind of like a Moorish, maybe, yeah. uh, kind of deal going on. Something like that. Okay. So I think the original series handled that pretty well. We'll have to see about this. I, I'm, I'm just going to be entertained by everyone trying to keep all these names straight of all these characters, which are so, all the names. There's an Aegon, an Aemond, a Daemon, uh, Rhaenyra, Rhaenys. They're all... It sounds uh, miserable to read, but okay to watch, especially with subtitles. That's how I'm doing it. Cersei should have won. That's my <laughs> Game of Thrones hot take for the day. Amen. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back with more friends of the show to get into the big news of the day. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And catch us on the Plex TV app. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye-bye.